Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And our guest today is Robert Wood. Robert Wood may not be a name known to many of you because of his specialization, but he is recognized throughout the country as one of the leading tax lawyers in the United States. He has received every award that a tax lawyer can receive. He has, of course, been a a certified specialist in taxation in California, one of the founders since that began. He writes widely. His book on on taxation and legal settlements is the standard text uh, in the area. He received the Judson Klein Award of the taxation section of the California State Bar given annually to the leading tax lawyer in California. And he writes a column for the Los Angeles Daily Journal that I encourage all of you to look at and to read. I think the column, personally, for me, is so valuable that uh, it may be worth uh, subscribing to the paper for that reason alone. We're talking to Robert Wood today with his expertise because of the perspective changes in taxation in California and nationally that are going to affect everyone the practice of law and everyone in terms of planning. And we wanted to get Rob's perspective on what has been proposed, what may happen, and how to plan for it. Robert Wood, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Howard. Nice to be here. So we're looking at major tax proposals. For example, In California, the current tax rate is, I think, 13.3%. And there are various proposals to raise it at one level to 14.3, at another to 16.3, at the highest level to 16.8. And of course, California makes no distinctions for capital gains. So we're talking about proposals in California, even putting aside the, 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 the federal proposals that under current law, that could add to a very, very significant uh, uh, taxes uh, for for capital gains as well as ordinary income. What do you think the prospects are of this of this happening? Yeah, well, I, I would have to say, um, I mean, I'm not the best predictor of which tax laws are gonna are gonna pass, um, but my my personal belief is that these California proposals to increase the income tax rate. Um, probably will not pass. I mean, that they, they were introduced in early 2020, kind of early pandemic. It was sort of bad timing, I suspect, um, to hike the 13.3% uh, California rate to up to 16.8 for people earning multi-million. Probably the most uh, biting part of it was the if you're making over a million dollars, and there are lots of people in, the, in that category, uh, we'd go from 13.3 to 14.3, but but again, that bill didn't pass. It was reintroduced recently. Um, it it might pass, but um, I I personally don't think so. Well, then you combine that with the uh, federal proposals. I mean, the Biden proposals in in the Green Book and the budget that was recently uh, published uh, call for essentially above a certain level, taxing capital gains at the ordinary income tax rate. Uh, so for, there'll be a large amount of income that is solely taxed at the high income tax rate. Uh, combined with the California rates, and even under the existing 
we've seen reports of people leaving the state of California uh, because so much of their wealth uh, may be tied up in the exercise and sale of, of highly appreciated assets. Uh, and tell me what happens there. People leave, the, the, the California taxing authorities follow very closely uh, when, when people leave the state of California, don't they? Do they conduct special audits? What happens for those who may be considering leaving uh, because of the of the high tax rates? Yeah, um, uh, Howard, a great question. I think everybody is sort of eyeing the borders at some point on some level. Um, in, in the past year, uh, the, these tax increases um, and the pandemic may, maybe was a bit of a perfect storm. I think probably every tax lawyer in California has seen over the years plenty of people leave. Uh, I know I have, um, and usually that's right before some big income event. Um, and, and that might be a sale of a business, might be sale of um, stock. Uh, I mean, these might be a big legal settlement you know, before a uh, sort of a career case or whistleblower case or something comes in. Um, and these days it might be before selling a big bunch of cryptocurrency. So it's, it's always happened this past year. I've seen uh, dozens of, of clients uh, leave California. You're right. The Franchise Tax Board is kind of famous for auditing or following up. So it has to be done with care. But I mean, there's no sort of, uh, you know, bars at the, at the California border. You can leave you can do it effectively. And there's a lot more interest in that right now. Well, I guess there are two issues. One is uh, an audit in, in, in terms of proving that the person truly has left. I mean, there are two sets of issues. Has the person truly left uh, or simply moved someplace on in, in September and, and stayed a couple of months and then claimed they're no longer a resident? So that's one issue. And another is even if one leaves, what California source income has to be paid? Let's turn to the first what does a person have to do, thinking of leaving the state, to truly establish that the residence has changed so that not subject to taxation as a California resident, regardless of source? Yeah, I mean, uh, Howard, the, the, uh, and you're right to, to bifurcate the issues like that. Uh, the sort of what do you have to do? Um, I have probably 25 things that I could uh, that I could list. These are kind of common sense, um, frankly. I mean, you, I think, find these kinds of things on the internet, um, you know, things like you, you, uh, you know, you, you physically move. That's the biggest uh, item of all. You register to vote, driver's license, car registrations, uh, social clubs. I mean, kind of you, you name it. Um, you want to do as many things as possible. In my experience, not everybody, in fact, probably nobody is willing to do every single thing. And it's all a facts and circumstances test. So it's always easiest for me if someone says, yeah, I'm going to sell my California house and buy a house in, in blank, the new place. Um, but some people, you know, you, you can have property and still be a non-resident. Um, so it's, it's just uh, a little more, a little more complicated, but those things are all things that can do, and you're quite right, that moving and you know getting a post office box in Austin, Texas, but not really staying there, or moving somewhere for a few months and then moving back, um, that doesn't work. 
Well, and even, let, let's turn to the second to the second of the issues that we talked about the, of the, the bifurcated issues. So suppose you do everything right and, and your residency has changed. Some of the things you mentioned, for example, about to make a major sale of, a, of, a, of an asset based in California, for example, about to sell real property based in California, and so you leave and go to another state, uh, and you establish residence. You're now a resident of that other state, but aren't there issues of whether you still have to pay income on California sourced income, even if you've established residency in another state? Uh, indeed. And, and I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And you would probably be an easy client. I find that I say these kinds of things to an awful lot of people and they, and they don't like me. They don't, they don't like hearing them. Um, you know, telling someone that they're still going to pay California tax and still going to be filing a return is not a, not a popular message. Uh, California source income is taxed to um, anybody, even if it's, you know, someone living in Alaska. So, um, and, and real property, if you, if you sell a California house or any other kind of real property, that's California source income, no matter where you live. By the way, but, I, wanna, uh, I want to, if, if, if I can, Rob, I want to make clear, since you mentioned I would be an easy client, I am not considering leaving California. <laughs> I have lived here all my life. I am not going out of the state, changing my residence. Uh, these are interesting questions, I think, for a great many people because so many of my friends have talked about it. But personally, uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm here to the very end, uh, uh, so to speak. So I, I I can. By the way, I can say that too. I have I don't know how many clients over the past year have told me how probably correctly how stupid I am for staying in California. I should be in Texas or Puerto Rico. Lots of clients move there these days. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm kind of here to stay. So the issue of uh, California, that's, that's great. I, I think it's great that you're saying, I think uh, it's a very interesting decision that people make. And of course, depending on how much is involved for Elon, Elon Musk, where there literally may be billions involved, uh, it's a whole different, uh, maybe a different story. But yep. what is California source income? You mentioned uh, some some uh, possibilities, which let's talk about them as hypotheticals. You know, a lawyer, uh, say a solo practitioner, to make it easy, uh, has a large settlement coming up. It's, it's going to fund in six or nine months, uh, and the tax bite will be extraordinary. Uh, and so the, it p picks up and moves to wherever. Texas, Miami is now a hotspot. Uh, and, and is out of state when the return is filed, uh, will that be California source in income? What is the test for California source income? Yeah, it's it's easier to say um, uh, kind of what what it, it. There are lots of gray areas, but it's just to take that example, uh, there's probably a position to take that the lawyer is um, doesn't have California source income when that settlement hits. Obviously, so I think from a return filing perspective, and the, the most important date uh, would be not the return filing date, but rather the date when the settlement documents are signed, triggering the lawyer's right to the fee, and the you know date when the money comes in. Those need to be out of state. But California could very easily, and and they and they would, um, I think, take the position that lots of those services on that case were rendered while the person was a California resident. Um, and my, my guess is if they audited that a case like that would probably end up being compromised. But there is good you know, federal tax authority and some California authority 
saying that, um, you know, when does when is the income earned? It really is not earned until the client uh, signs the settlement agreement triggering the fee. So that's why lawyers are able to do structured legal fees. Is, and, 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 but you're talking now about an issue that come, come up uh, in terms of constructive receipt. I mean, won't there always be discussions about uh, planning? Others would say manipulation, uh, where it's clear that the lawyer has the or, or the recipient has the capacity to determine uh, when the funding becomes legally obligated or when the funding is received and arranges to have it in a different time, maybe earlier or later, but isn't, doesn't constructive receipt also become a major kind of issue here? Well, it's, it's an issue. Um, however, I mean, there is good, and I see a, a lot of, uh, lawyers structuring legal fees, um, you know, including some enormous ones, um, kind of mind boggling numbers. And the, the federal tax authority is strong that, uh, as long as you don't sign the settlement agreement, even if, as you're suggesting, you sort of art artificially keep pushing it off into the future, you do not have the right to the income. So as a practical matter, could you say that, well, gee, the guy could have taken the money anytime? Yes, but that's not constructive receipt. That's different from, I mean, the same, a similar example, say I wanna sell my house and I say to someone who offers cash now today, um, I say, well, no, I'm not willing to sign the document unless it says you're going to pay me in January of next year. And as long as I don't sign a document that says I have the right to the money now, it's, it's taxable next year. Um, and the same thing applies in the context of legal settlements. Well, one of the themes, uh, one of the themes that you've written of in several of your columns is the enforcement of the California taxing authorities, the Franchise Tax Board and the other California taxing authorities are often much more aggressive, especially in issues concerning these kind of things, uh, overall taxation, than even the IRS. And, and you've, in several of your <laughs> columns, you've talked about, you may think you're okay on the federal level, but watch out because the California taxing authorities they take a much harsher line. Generally, talk about the California enforcement. Is that true? Is there a greater risk in these issues with California asserting than with the, 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 than the federal doctrines? Yeah, there, there is. And, and you're right. It's probably, you ask any tax lawyer, I think, and this is probably true, asking almost any accountant as well, you know, which would you rather have um, personally or for your client? a IRS problem or a franchise tax board problem, a California tax problem, almost invariably the answer would be the IRS because it's a lot easier to deal with them. They tend to be more reasonable, um, believe it or not. Uh, the FTB is, is, is much, much harsher. Um, it is still true. Um, so it, it uh, and they, they do take um, and they do audit they do, um, you know, disagree more frequently, in my experience, than the, the IRS. I think that's important. I think a great many people who don't deal with this regularly are, are surprised by this. Uh, they really think California is an afterthought and the real issues they'll have to deal with the IRS. And I think one of the things that you've emphasized and is extremely important in terms of planning is to realize that you may have face a greater difficulty with the California authorities than 
than with the IRS. So yeah, speaking, and, and sorry if I just to interject this because yeah. I think it surprises a lot of people. So if you have an IRS audit and you resolve it, and let's say you pay them, you compromise it or something, uh, but uh, or you or you lose, but let's say you pay them some money. Invariably, for a California taxpayer, invariably you will get a bill from the FTB for the California piece of that. Um, and if you, you know, if you never tell California, they, California can come back to you 20 years later and still send you a bill. In contrast, if you have a California audit, and this happens a lot, and you you basically keep that California audit alive for a few years until you're beyond the IRS statute of limitations. You might lose your California tax case, but still never have to pay the IRS simply because of the sort of weird interaction of the two statutes of limitation. Well, this is a, again, you mentioned it, but it's an absolutely critical point to focus on. Essentially, you're saying for many things, there may be no statute of limitations for the California tax authorities asserting a tax liability. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the basic rule in California is four years. Um, that's statutory. So three years is the basic IRS statute of limitations, four years for California. But as you just said, there are plenty of exceptions. Well, but that raises an issue that you've also written about is how long does it go if, if what you've done is not file a tax return, which ties in with the move away issue. So someone moves to Texas or Florida uh, they're a resident of Texas or Florida, and then doesn't file a tax return, even though there may be California source income that could be asserted. Uh, the IRS then has an unlimited ability with no statute of limitations, if no tax return is filed, uh, to assert tax liability? Yeah, correct. The IRS or the Franchise Tax Board, probably any tax agency, I would imagine, if you don't file a return, there's no statute that begins to run. Which, which is why, sort of turning back to your California source income question, for people, this is another unpopular thing I say, but turning, if, if you move and you file your kind of last California tax return, which would be a part year return for the year that you leave, then you may think, I never want to file in California again. My view is that that's short-sighted, that if you, if you have California source income, Let's say you're a member of a California LLC that throws off a little bit of income, or you have a, a rental property in California that gives you a little income. You file a return every year for that, and that's a good thing. Not only are you doing what you're supposed to, paying a little bit of California tax as a non-resident, but the statute runs on those years. And so, you know, much of uh, audits are about timing, and that's a good thing, I think. So, uh Talk about other kinds of California source income, the sweep of it. For example, just to indicate to people the range of claim of source income, when athletes come to play in California, is the income attributable, even if they're not California residents, is the income attributable to their time here uh, taxable, a tax liability to the state of California? Yes, that's right. So if they, some um, athlete, a professional athlete comes to California and is in California playing uh, baseball or football or whatever it is, um, games a few times a year, those days essentially get, um, get reported and they end up paying some of their income to California for the services they rendered in 
San Francisco or LA or wherever they wherever they were. So I mean, and those rules are are pretty clear. Yeah, I mention that not because I think uh, I hope many many of our listeners are, are athletes, but perhaps not. But just as an example of the extent of the claim of California tax liability for California source income. Somehow, this, when I tell people about the athlete example, that raises their awareness as to what the scope of the claim might be, because we're talking about athletes not, not who haven't left California, but who never were residents of California, who've always lived someplace else, and yet that income would be treated as California source income with a tax liability to the state of California. Now, you mentioned, I want to go, go back to filing the return. I think the risk, you're, we talked about, of course, if you don't file a return federal or state, uh, there's no limit on the ability of the taxing authority. But I think many people that, that uh, move away will, will naturally continue to file federal tax returns. They understand uh, that they have to continue to file federal tax returns and will do so. But my sense is that a fair number of people who move away especially three, four, five years later, have filed no return, even though they're receiving perhaps rental income from California or a limited, li- a limited partnership distribution of income from California, uh, will not think that they should file or have to file a tax return. But what you're saying is that no matter where you've moved to, so long as you have California source income, you should be advised to file that California return. Yeah, I mean that—that's right. And to go back to your sort of you know to move example and someone moving precipitously, um, I mean I suppose that if you had very limited California source income and you didn't do as you're supposed to and didn't report, you know, and didn't pay California, I mean California could you know could catch up to you. But for someone who moves, if they're moving primarily because of some big income event. The sensitive year is obviously that one, or that, you know those years if there are multiple years, and and in most residency audits when they happen, are are largely about timing. So hopefully, if three or four years later, because it may be that long, it's at least you know the next year before you file a tax return, and then it might be a year or two or three before California audits you. So hopefully you'll still be a resident of whatever state that is uh, at the time of the audit. And, and California may say, yeah, sure, we agree that you're now a resident of, uh, of Washington State or Wyoming. But they, they, they may say, often will say, but you think that you moved in May and we think you're a California resident till October. And predictably, they often say that when sliding it a little bit in time gets them more money. We've been talking about this very interesting issue of uh, of move away, uh, high California tax rates causing people to move, what the continuing tax liabilities are. That's one of the major tax issues that people are discussing affecting the entire state, given the latest uh, uh, demographic measures that have have been reported. Those of you listening to this uh, podcast in learning about what what we're talking about, can also obtain one hour of MCLA credit for listening to the podcast through the Daily Journal. Let's take a break, a short break, so that you can hear how to obtain that MCLA credit, and then we'll return and continue our discussion with Robert Wood. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. 
Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. The Daily Journal doesn't just feature stories from our staff of reporters. We also rely on columns from attorneys, judicial officers, and legal experts like you to inform the legal community through our perspective coverage. If there's a column you would like to write or to get more information on writing for The Daily Journal, contact our associate legal editor, Elon Isaacs, at the email in the description of this episode. We're now back from the break, and, and Robert, we've, we've been talking about, uh, even a, after moving, California source income. What is the extent of California source income? You've mentioned uh, real estate rentals. Uh, if a property is sold, and a California real estate property is sold, even by the, by the now non-resident, and there's been a gain, that has to be reported as well, doesn't it? The gain on the sale. Yeah, there have been. I mean, this gets a little bit exotic, uh, but there have been a few transactions that I've seen where someone is uh, an out-of-state resident um, and selling California real property, kind of quote-unquote, but they're not selling the real estate, which clearly is California source income, and instead selling the entity that owns the real estate, which might be a you know an LLC. And so the guy in Mississippi, for example, sells the LLC um, and, and then the argument is it's sourced to wherever his residence is. So there, there are a lot of gray areas, but one that I think I should mention, and I'm uh, at least flag, is what if you're an out-of-state resident and you are earning serv- you know, sort of services as a consultant to the movie industry in L.A. and you get paid um, consulting fees and you get a 1099 from the studio in LA. Is that California source income? California has been saying that it is, and you need to file a return, but, but there are some disputes on that. But I suppose re- realistically, I mean, you've taken, if one has never been a resident of the state of California, uh, I don't know technically how this does, but it seems to me the approach that the that the California authorities may take. If you're talking about someone in Mississippi uh, who's selling a, a stock in an entity that owns real estate in California, but that person has never been a California resident, that's one thing. But it, I think it's likely to be viewed differently by the Franchise Tax Board if you owned that property while you were a California resident, uh, then moved away, and then right before it came time to sell it, uh, transferred that property in, a, in some sort of tax-free way to another entity, to a corporation, and then sold the stock and claimed because you were selling the stock and not the property, it wasn't California source income. Is that kind of planning available or is that just going to raise a lot of eyebrows and not, and, 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 and not solve the problem? I mean, some of it is available, but, but, it, but it, may, it may raise eyebrows. And and as I say, for California source income, there are lots of, um, you know, lots of disputes and lots of gray areas. Even lawyers who come into California, for example, to try a case um, 
California, I can tell you, would take the position it's California source income, but a lot of lawyers, you know, would would disagree and do disagree. I think one of the reasons we're talking about this, and one of the reasons I think it's it's so interesting, is that whatever the rules were before, all the stories about people migrating out and the fact of people migrating out, whatever the rules were then, as, and how they were enforced, I should say, is one thing. But don't you think that given all the publicity and given the knowledge of people moving away who, if they'd stayed otherwise, would have had these very large tax liabilities, is going to increase the attention that the California Tax Authority pay? And it's essentially, they may reach back to other doctrines that they hadn't been looking at in the regular course of events until people started moving away that had potential high liabilities? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's a reasonable um, thing to think. I mean, the 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 government uh, typically doesn't you know doesn't move too quickly, and that's true in California as well. But um, I do think there's a lot of focus on this, and nobody wants to be the sort of low hanging fruit. So you want to try to make your facts as strong as you can, and build in as much time buffer as you can, so that you're not the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about California source income before we go on to other subjects. You've mentioned payments from an LLC. You get a K-1, it's a California LLC uh, or, or rental property. What about stock dividends? If, if you receive stock dividends from a California-based corporation and you're out of state, is that California source income? It's sort of, de- it depends. So if it's a California company, I don't know, Intel, which I think is in California, let's say, and you're getting public company dividends, um, I mean, that very clearly is not California source. But on the other hand, if you are getting, uh, you know, distributions uh, that you might call dividends from an S corp, those would be report in California, those would be reported on a K-1. So that clearly is California source income. But if you're thinking about public company dividends or selling public company stock, those would be sourced to where you're a, a resident. Okay. That's a very important distinction in terms of source, I think. Uh, very, very important. So what about the non-listed C-Corp? Uh, it's, it's not an S-Corp, but it's a non-listed C-Corp based in California. Is that California source income? No. So if you're getting a dividend you're sitting in Nevada, and let's assume you're a bona fide resident. You're sitting in Nevada, and you get a dividend from a private C corp that's in California. That's not California source. So by the same token, if you in Nevada sell your stock in the California C corp, that also is not California source, unless and this would be probably unusual, but it can't happen. Somehow your investment in that California C-Corp has acquired a business situs in California. Yeah. But in the garden variety case where you're an investor or something, it's it's clearly not California source. No. I'm glad, oh, I, I, I asked that because we talked about the dividend in the context of a publicly listed corporation, and it's not simply the dividend of the publicly listed corporation. It's the structure of the corporation. The S-Corp uh, would be California source or may be California source, but the C-Corp uh, health corporation formed in that way, uh, in terms of what we've talked about, uh, uh, would would not be correct. 
so what kind of, in terms of this, obviously without breaching any confidence or anything, but what kind of concerns are you hearing from people, whether clients or not, about the effect of these proposed changes in tax rates and the burden of California tax, burden of California taxation? What are people most concerned about in terms of dealing with these things? Well, um, I mean, I think nobody leaves. I don't. I don't think nobody leaves entirely for one reason. Um, at least, at least, most commonly, decisions are tax decisions plus other things. Um, so, but and, and I think people are concerned whether or not California's rates go up. People are already awfully concerned. Um, and 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 there since 2018, when the federal law was changed to say that you can only deduct up to ten thousand dollars of state and local taxes on your federal return, that triggered some moves too, and people are still upset. I think rightly by that. Um, that you know, the so-called salt a state and local tax uh, deduction a cap could be changed at the federal level. But for right now, if you're paying lots and lots of California taxes, um, you know, you're upset if you can't deduct them. It makes your combined California and federal rate higher. But I think more than all of this, uh, the ch potential changes in the federal rates are upsetting a lot of people. Yeah. No, the salt thing, is, the salt is incredibly important and apparently is part of the negotiation that's going on within the Democratic Party uh, about the uh, proposals. Uh, because as, as reported, uh, members of Congress in the House and the Senate, uh, Democratic members of Congress, are, are pressing the administration to include a repeal of the SALT limitation uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 any, in any tax bill. But the other thing that people are, are focused on, and it's quite different from what we're talking about, but I'm sure you deal with it all the time, is the extraordinary proposals, and, and these may happen given where the country is and where the Congress is, the extraordinary proposals that affect investment in real estate, uh, the proposals uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the Green Book uh, and in the, the published proposals are essentially uh, to stop the, tax, the 1041 tax-free exchange above a certain very limited amount. Uh, and that has been the basis of real estate investment in California for as long as anyone can remember. Is that something that, that people are focused on and talking about in terms of their planning? It's, it's hard to know what kind of planning uh, you can do. Well, and, and I'd say there, there's a lot of sort of shock and awe, I think, right now. Um, uh, but but you're, you're right. The 1031 exchange, which, I mean, has been on the chopping block before um, in Congress, they've talked about it for years that it's too good a deal for real estate people. You know, Donald Trump and, and many other real estate people, many, you know, big insurance companies, you name it, people do 1031 exchanges and keep rolling their proceeds, you know, into ever more um, expensive properties. Uh, I, I personally don't think 1031 will go away uh, because I've Thought this for years. Um, I don't see it now, but um, but yeah, it's 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 possible, um, for those, and it would fundamentally change real estate. That's for sure. Though for those who uh, are not familiar with this and what happens and why the proposals are so significant, it's the combination of the of the I'm sorry the 1031 
exchange plus the stepped-up basis of death so that it's been a regular planning tool uh, for a great many people. The 1031 exchange provides that like-kind property as defined, there are exceptions, residences or not, but investments in real estate, like-kind real estate exchanges, uh, do not, uh, can be tax-deferred, uh, so you can sell and buy up within a certain period of a like real property and continue to build real estate assets, buying and selling, utilizing the 1031 exchange, building very significant, valuable properties without ever paying any tax at all during your life, and then because the estate tax provisions provided what's called the stepped-up basis at death, which is that heirs take the property at the, at the value of death without paying any of the income gain, the capital gain that's been occurred. That has been a, a fundamental planning tool, uh, and both of those things are, are on the chopping block, so to speak, in terms of the president's proposals, both limitations on the 1031 exchange, they'll still be some permitted at a very low level, and also the end of the stepped-up basis above a certain amount. That, if those were to pass, that, it, that cuts to the core of a fundamental planning tool and investment tool that people have used uh, for as long as most of us can remember in terms of building wealth, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, Howard, you're you're um, you're dead right on this, um, and is big and important to the real estate community, which, by the way, is a very strong lobby. Uh, I believe, as big as they are, um, and as important and pivotal to California and elsewhere uh, as 1031 is, the stepped-up basis point you just made is even more pivotal. I mean, it's about as pivotal as you can get. Um, and it would be a, a an absolute sea change. In fact, that's not even, I don't even know what the term is. Um, it's kind of revolutionary to talk about that. Um, I, once again, I hope I'm right. I kind of believe that it won't happen, the, the repeal of stepped-up basis. And, and, and it wouldn't just impact the sort of real estate example you used, and you're, of course, right about it, but it would impact kind of everybody about everything that they do, about their house, their personal house, uh, their, you know, their home, their stock investments, because it's it's one of the reasons that the estate tax has not been, um, you know, I guess a bigger political football is stepped up in basis, which fixes the income tax problem. Yeah. I think, and I, I, hope, I hope our listeners are not offended, but so many people do not discuss these things regularly. It's important to take a minute to understand the example you used of the home. You own a house, you've owned it for whatever, 10, 15, 20 years. The house has gone up in value, perhaps by 50%. Uh, and, and death occurs, you die. This is not an estate tax issue. The estate tax is done on the assets uh, at, at death. It's a, it's a different tax. We're talking about what happens to the income appreciation to the value appreciation of the house. Say it was bought for $500,000 and it's now worth a million dollars, which is not an unusual example in California. Uh, I, I have to mention there is a $500,000 uh, exemption in this. So, but using, just using that as an example. Um, and right now the heirs don't pay any of the income tax on that, any. They get it at the new value. 
The proposal is that at death, the estate, the heirs, would have to pay what the income tax would have been if the property were sold. Essentially, death is treated as though it were a sale. So regardless of what the estate tax does, the proposal is to add that tax by getting rid of the stepped-up basis. It's not the new basis of the existing value. You pay tax on what the old basis was as though the property uh, had been sold. Uh, and that's why it is such a dramatic proposal. Now, there, I tell you, there have been, even in the bill, there are timing exemptions for the sale of family-owned businesses, giving a period of time to pay the tax. But I think it only applies, the proposal only applies to family-owned businesses. There's no deferral or accommodation uh, for, for other things like the value of the family home, is there, in, in, in the proposals? Not to my knowledge. And I mean, Howard, you, you, you sound like a tax lawyer. You, you did a good job of describing that. Um, and, but no, to my knowledge, a house is just, you know, it, it, a house would, uh, I guess, would fall um, in the way that you described. You'd, you'd pay. You know, you mentioned um, how, how these have been talked about in the past. They've never gotten anywhere. Uh, you mentioned shock and awe and that we may be in a revolutionary period. I would tell you a conversation. We are in a very unusual political period. I think that's an understatement uh, in terms of what has been moved. You know, political scientists had often talked about something called the Overton window, named after a political scientist named Overton. What were the things that could be considered as plausible and talked about? And what were things that were outside the Overton window uh, that, that you, it was, weren't even worth talking about? Uh, for a long, long time, the things we're now talking about, uh, the, the tax-free 1031 exchange, the stepped-up basis, really were outside the Overton window. They weren't seriously talked about as proposals. They were, talk they were considered fringe proposals. They are now in the mainstream. They're inside the Overton window. Uh, and I should tell you, in term I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was talking about the assembly of nobles that was called... Uh, by Louis XVI, uh, three years in December of 1786, two and a half years before the Estates General. And the Assembly of Nobles was just that, an Assembly of Nobles. Uh, France had terrible tax problems. It really was. It's a whole other subject, the impact of taxation on huge historical events. But the, 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 the France had these horrendous tax problems because of the way taxes were collected and who who they collected. And so they brought together the Assembly of Nobles. And there were people in the, by the way, this is a real conversation uh, that I've heard people have. And within the Assembly of Nobles, people said, look, there's going to be a revolution. We can't go on with what we've done. We have to make some accommodation and agree that we will be taxed more in order to hold together. Didn't get any place. They wouldn't budge. Everyone said, we're not going to give up our privileges. We're not going to change. You're exaggerating the risk. And so the Assembly of Notables, they made some proposals, didn't go any place. And that's what led Louis XVI to having the call the Estates General uh, that met in 1789. And we all know uh, what followed from there. So the question is, what kind of political moment are we in to have these proposals 
now being very seriously considered. I mean, would you, would you agree that while five years ago, for example, the 1031 and stepped-up basis proposals, we wouldn't even be talking about them. I wouldn't have devoted a podcast to them. But today, they are serious proposals that need to be discussed. So they have moved in terms of plausibility and possibility very significantly in the last couple of years, haven't they? Yeah, I, I guess so. But I also think, I mean, on the stepped-up basis point, and I'm, I just have enough trouble trying to figure out what the law is, without worrying about what it's going to be, you know, next next week or next month. Um, but but all sorts of people have been saying uh, that the the mechanical steps of trying to change the stepped up uh, basis and trying to implement a transition. Are enormously difficult, but I mean, you're right. It's it is a it's a different time and way different than it was five years ago. You 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 mentioned the mechanics, the operations, and want to talk more about that. But you know, we're covering this because these are ongoing news stories. The Daily Journal has been covering these issues. The Daily Journal covers a great many uh, issues in addition to this. Let's take another break and hear about some of the stories the Daily Journal has has also been covering in addition to these issues. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of June 7th. In a rare move, a Ninth Circuit panel has changed its mind on a ruling it made nine months ago. The decision rejected habeas relief for Keith Ford, who was found guilty of first-degree murder with firearm enhancements last fall. During Ford's trial, the prosecutor for Solano County told jurors Ford was not presumed innocent, which his defense attorney said misstated the law. Senior Ninth Circuit Judge William Fletcher ruled last fall those statements violated Ford's due process rights. But he has since changed his mind and said the state appellate court had used California's equivalent of the Darden standard while reviewing the conviction and affirmed the state court in denying habeas relief. Regulators accused Southern California Gas of repeatedly misleading them about its practices leading up to and following a gas rupture six years ago. Lawyers for the California Public Utilities Commission say the 2015 Aliso Canyon gas leak was the result of years of issues, including well-documented leaks dating back to 1984, running the gas well without proper inspection, and unsuccessfully attempting to kill the well instead of following proper procedure to seal it off. Now the Safety Enforcement Division is trying to get the commission to levy sanctions against SoCal Gas, which lawyers for the individual plaintiffs suing the company say could bolster liability. The trial is expected to begin next year. Though it may feel like workplaces are returning to normal, attorneys say it may be an employer's best interests to stick to the pandemic rules for now. Cal OSHA suggests its revised COVID-19 rules relax workplace safety standards put in place during the pandemic. But attorneys are saying the changes are too narrow to let up now. The changes mean vaccinated workers no longer have to wear masks or physically distance themselves from other vaccinated employees in the office. However, this rule change requires employers to know who can be in a room with whom, and attorneys say that's one reason to keep the mask mandates in place. Another reason is a hotly debated provision in the revised rules, which is the subject of N95 masks. Attorneys suggest employers keep a supply of N95 masks on hand for workers to wear voluntarily. It's unclear at this point how many more restrictions will change, and the board meets next on June 17th. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break, and, and we've been talking about the, uh, the, the real possibilities here. 
and you mentioned the mechanics, and I think that's worth talking about, what you're referring to, because when a person makes it, what you're referring to, I think, is when you sell the property, it you know what it's worth. The sale determines the worth, and you pay the tax between the basis and the sale price. Uh, but on death, there's been no sale. There's only been a death. So there would be required some appraisal of what that property is worth in order to determine what the tax should be. And that's one of the mechanical problems. The same mechanical problem, for example, the proposals in California and even nationally to have a wealth tax, a percentage, Senator Warren has proposed a percentage, 1% above a certain extreme amount of, amount of wealth, but that requires an annual appraisal of wealth. And these appraisals are not so easy to do. So I think when you talked about the mechanics, one of the things you were talking about, if the stepped up basis goes, goes away, would be both the difficulty and the disputes that would arise in what that final value should be uh, that represented the gain over, over, over the basis. Isn't that the kind of issue you were talking about? Uh, yes, and uh, and any valuation matter is uh, is 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 I guess by its by its uh, sort of at its essence something on which people can disagree. So um, I've seen over the years. I don't know how I have a couple of uh, state tax uh, cases presently, and it, and and valuation is one of the key issues. I mean, it, I think it always is meaning. How much was that property worth at death? And um, and the you know the IRS uh, will say one thing, and the taxpayer will say another. Uh, famously, just in the news, I imagine this was covered in the Daily Journal. Um, Michael Jackson's estate uh, just resolved, uh, just got a key tax court victory uh, recently involving uh, image rights, basically. Um, uh, how much his intellectual property was, was worth on death? The, I think the IRS said 160 million or something, and uh, the court ended up, the tax court ended up saying four million or or something. So um, disputes about charitable contribution. You know, you donate something to charity that's not that that's not like public stock or something. How much is it worth? So it it comes up a lot, but state tax, as you say, and if a stepped-up basis goes away, there will be enormous disputes. And the wealth tax is a whole other issue that, as you say, would require, if that passes, it would be the first wealth tax in the nation, um, and it would require an annual valuation. My personal two cents is I don't think it'll happen, but if it does, boy, they're really going to be uh, people running for the border. Well, I, but in addition to that, I think it, it's a valuable part of the discussion uh, to talk about the kind of, of laws uh, that, that cause, cause huge disputes and the kind of laws that don't. Anything, you know, you, you, when you pay a capital gains tax on a sale, there's no dispute about value. I mean, unless there's some, been some fraudulent maneuvering, but there's no dispute about value. It was sold for X. You know that's the price of X. Your basis was Y. You subtract Y from X, that's the gain. It's automatic. But once you move from a transaction that validates value, whether it's income that's paid uh, uh, in, in some way or whether it's a sale of an asset, once you move from a transaction that establishes the, the, the basis on which you're working to issues of valuation 
in which there's been no transaction for that particular matter, but you've got to look to other transactions and get experts and procedure to determine value, you've had an enormous impact on how the whole society functions simply because of the deadweight costs of having to resolve the valuation dispute that you otherwise don't have to resolve in other contexts. And one of the important things of taxation as other things is trying to avoid those kind of issues, isn't it? I mean, well said. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's the, I thought, I, I was wrong about this too, but uh, so I got out of law school in 1979. And I remember in the 70s, and I think maybe in the early 80s, flat tax uh, was still being discussed in this country, as opposed to a graduated, you know, very difficult system that we have. Um, and a, a flat tax uh, or, or even a modified flat tax with several different rates that was really easy to administer and kind of a one-page tax return, boy, that would be a good idea. I mean, in terms of ease of administration, I mean, maybe it's not good in other ways, but ease of administration and avoiding disputes is really important. And you're right that uh, valuation is in some ways the most easy to dispute issue that there is. That's ironic. That's one of the reasons that people, as an alternative, uh, uh, push uh, the, the value, the VAC, in so much of Europe, the value-added tax, even though it includes the word value, it's pretty automatic. I mean, yep. it, it's based on sales along the uh, along the supply chain. Uh, the administrative costs are not high. Uh, it, it's collected. Uh, there's a, the politics of that are the people that want to hold down government expenditures hate the value-added tax simply because it's so easy to administer. And in fact, the difficulty of administering itself is a political issue in terms of who will gain and who will lose uh, by the difficulty of, of administering the rules. Uh, so we face, uh, we face all, all of those things. We're in this extraordinary period uh, where, uh, where these proposals are being made. Uh, you're right, we all have such difficulty uh, dealing with the law as it is that, that we have to wonder when is it worth worrying about what the law might be. But when the proposals get this serious, I mean, what we're talking about on the federal level are published proposals. These are not news conferences or news stories. Uh, anyone can go on the internet and see the president's proposals and the so-called Green Book uh, that sets out both the expenditures and the taxation. Uh, the proposals we're talking about in California are in statutory language. They are not simply being talked about as generalized principles. And so when things get to that point, uh, then I think it's worth spending the time we have uh, in terms of thinking about the future and also in terms of the California uh, move away issue and the change of demographics uh, uh, in California. We've been talking about a whole range of issues and there is no one that we better could be talking about them than with Robert Wood. Rob, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us on this. I do want to say to all of you listening, what you've heard today from Robert is just a small part, if you've found value here, of what you will find in reading his columns. His columns regularly appear uh, in the Daily Journal. Uh, I've said to him, I've been reading them for years. I have not read one that I did not take away, something new uh, that was functional uh, I have said to people privately, and there's no reason I shouldn't say it publicly, 
that I think Robert Wood's columns alone are worth the price of subscription to the Daily Journal. But regardless of that opinion, we thank you so much, Rob, for taking the time, for sharing your experience with us on this. And, and, and we look forward, perhaps, to speaking to you again uh, if some of these things are, in fact, enacted when there will be major issues uh, of administration, advice, and planning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.